the biggest differentiator between the winners and losers is are you going out doing quantitative interviews, getting rid of the confirmation bias so you know exactly what to work on and what not to work on? Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all doing well out there and having a good start of the spring season. It's always a fun time of year. My guest today is Dan Adams, and Dan's been on the show before, and every time Dan and I have a conversation, it's always a lot of fun. Dan is the head of what's called the AIM Institute, and they help companies do a much better job of understanding the voice of customer, especially in the B2B business area. Dan, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Paul. I enjoyed the last time, and I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, and how are you? Doing well. Keeping pretty busy, working on some new projects. In fact, we've got some some research we've been doing that if you want to talk about a little bit, we can cover that. But yeah, a lot of fun things going on these days. Definitely, definitely. And we may have some new some new listeners that haven't had a chance to hear the previous podcast. So maybe just spend 15, 30 seconds telling us about the AIM Institute. Sure. Yeah, we're basically trainers at heart. We started the AIM Institute 18 years ago. And what we do is train B2B company personnel how to interview their customers, which tend to be you know, businesses. So we're training chemists and engineers and marketing and product management people how to go out and do voice of customer with their customers so they can develop better products for them. That's great. That's great. Definitely a need for sure. And I've talked to some of your customers and, and I know that the quality of, of, of the service you provide and the training you provide is very well received. So, you know, you're just making a good impact out there. So thanks for that. But Dan, I thought I'd ask you, you know, let's just start getting up to date on what's been changing and what do you see as the biggest challenge now in the industry today? You know, it's kind of interesting, Paul, but last year I teamed up with Gina O'Connor of Babson College, and we did some research into leadership. And so this this isn't what you and I normally talk about, but we're going right. to maybe go up to 30,000 feet here for just a little bit, because it does actually impact product development quite seriously. But here's what we did. We sent out a survey, got about 650 responses. And we wanted to find out what type of leadership style was out there. Now, we didn't use these terms in the survey, but we broke all the leaders down into builders, remodelers, decorators, or realtors, okay? And uh, now a builder is somebody who does what you and I want to do, which is they want to drive organic growth by understanding and meeting customer needs, okay? That's what the founders of the company, every company that was ever founded was founded by a builder. So that's builders, okay? But then there's also remodelers. And these folks do useful work. I mean, they work on improving quality and productivity and all this kind of stuff. But the point is, at a certain point in time, you reach a point of diminishing returns, right? I mean, if you get the zero defects, what do you do next? You know, if you have a lights out productivity plant, what do you do next, right? And so if you're not building something new at a certain point, you basically spiral down into co competing on commoditization, okay? 
The third one is decorators. Now, we didn't say, are you a decorator? Because we knew nobody would sign up for that. But what we did say is, do you spend a lot of your time trying to present a favorable image to Wall Street? Uh, and these are the folks who, you know, you know them, right? They fixate on the quarterly results every quarter. <laughs> yeah. If if they were reporting every fortnight, right. they would be doing it every fortnight. Whenever people are looking, you know, they're <laughs> nervous. So, and then the last group is we call the realtors. These are the people who just love to do deals, M&A. You know, they, they um, maybe don't create value, but they let the value of other people's hands change hands. Now, here's the part that was sobering, Paul. When we ask senior leaders, which of these is your primary passion? Only one half of them said builders. When we asked subordinates what their senior leader's primary passion was, only one third of them said builders. So think about that. We got these companies out there. Every single one of them was founded by a builder. And now only between a third and a half of the senior leaders are builders. They're getting distracted doing other things. And I think that's hurting the new product development success. That is fascinating. And I love the, love the characterization of the, <laughs> the buckets, if you will. That's really, you need to write that into a book, Dan. Actually, <laughs> but, um, I'll be back later this year if you'll have me, because I am working on a book right now excellent. for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, I think, that I think impacts the business, the growth of the business. It impacts what you do and what I do, which is get very involved helping companies to develop new products. And if that's not something that's a major passion of senior leaders, then it's good. we're going to suffer, correct? Yeah, yeah, and it's going to drive down into culture of the organization and its its whole in, innovation strategy and and the way people work, the type of people the company attracts. That's it's a yes. little worrisome. <laughs> and also, Paul, the type of people the company chases yeah. away. This is a big concern I have. You know, if if you've got you know. Bill, the builder in an organization, and he's building. You've got Cal, the climber, right? Well, if Cal, the climber, gets to the top of the organization, what are all the other builders going to do that are in that organization? If they see his way of climbing is getting is by looking for businesses where he can cut costs in the near term to look good and jump to the next position. I know I'm being a little negative here. But, you know, if that's the message being sent, you're going to chase away your best future builders from that corporation. Yeah. Any thoughts on what to do about that, Dan? Yeah. I think boards of directors need to rethink things a bit. I think they need to think real seriously about who they're promoting. You know, I had an interview. I won't mention the name of it, but you know this company very well. They're a client of yours and a client of mine. And their, their CEO and chairman just retired as a CEO. He told me something which I was fascinated by. He said, you know, I don't just worry about succession planning. I worry about the successors to my successors. So they're looking down in the organization for these builders, people that they can promote from within that really have the right DNA. You know, if you do that and you watch people, you know what drives them, right? I mean, you can't hide it. If you're a real builder and you're out there understanding customer needs and you're getting excited about developing a, a new hydraulic cylinder or whatever it is, you know, you can't even you can't you can't run away from that. That's who you are. If you're somebody who just worries about the financial statements and you're into financial reviews, it's who you are. 
So these boards and sea level suites need to spend a lot more time thinking about the people that they're promoting. In my view, this is fascinating. We had a we had a conversation very recently. It might have been last week's or the week before, and and I think it was with Kevin Brady, and he said. In his mind, the best CEO, in fact, it's more than just his mind, his experience is the best CEOs were product managers. And, and that means that, you know, again, those are builders, right? And, and they actually make the yeah. best CEOs. Yeah. So you got a good point there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tell people that, listen, you need people doing acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions. You need people looking at productivity and quality. You need people presenting a favorable image to Wall Street, but you don't need them in the leadership position. You need them in the supporting position. What you need in the leading leader position is that builder mentality that got your company where it is in the first place. So is this a new opportunity for the AIM Institute to provide some training or, or, or support around this concept? Or is it too early to say that's a direction your company's going? And what, what drove you to have that study? That's a very fascinating study. Well, that's a really good question. You know, I mean, this isn't something we'll probably, I mean, I'll probably go out and talk to anybody who will listen to me and read the book, you know, but that's not really our main business model, stay training. So how, how did you back into that, right? Yeah, right. Well, the reason I backed into it is we see the number one difference between our clients who are successful and those who are not always boils down to leadership. You know, if I, if I talk to a, a senior leader and they say, well, you know, Two years ago, we did sales training, and last year we did productivity, and this year we're going to do market-facing innovation. You know, I, I say to them, you know, that's not something you turn on and off. You know, market-facing innovation, figuring out what your customers want, this is the core of your business. And when we get leaders, frankly, at clients that think as a builder thinks, Katie, bar the door. I mean, we're off to the races, or people do great work. But when they don't, I know this sounds maybe a little bit hard to say, I'm not really sure by the time somebody is at a senior leader, you can turn a decorator or a remodeler into a builder. So I think this is a long-term thing. If I can have any impact, it'll be long after I'm gone probably. But my hope is I can get this message out and boards of directors and C-level suites will be thinking more about getting those builders in place. And if that's all that happens, then Dan's pretty happy camper. There you go. That's a great, great position. The successors of the successors. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Dan, if you think about that and you think about voice of customer and B2B and doing a really optimized job at that, what are some of the methods that you think could overcome some of these challenges? Yeah. Glad you brought up the VOC or voice of customer, you know, we think about a builder as somebody who understands and meet customer needs. And if you think about those two words, understand and meet, well, you know, how do you meet better than your competition? Do you hire R&D staff or engineers 20% brighter? Maybe. But what if everybody in practically everybody in B2B is doing a terrible job of understanding customer needs? So that's where the real advantage comes to B2B companies to get these B2B voice of customer skills. And I'll send you guys 
some research we just completed a year ago on this, but we looked into what really drives success when it comes to B2B voice of customer skills. And in a nutshell, here's what you should be doing in the front end of innovation if you're a B2B company. And it's very skill-based because if you're a B2B company, you probably don't want to just use a bunch of hired guns because you probably need to turn the crank and do a lots of product development. You know, if you're uh, Apple or Microsoft, you might have a big launch. It's worth hundreds of millions right, of dollars. Right. But most B2B companies need to know how to do this themselves, That's right. you know. So, so what do you do? There's really two phases. You do your initial qualitative voice of customer, which we call discovery, and it's divergent. What other problems are you having, Mr. Customer? Anything else? We're getting these what we call outcomes within the customer's job to be done. And we're getting literally, well, our clients are doing this work, not us, but they're getting dozens and dozens of outcomes. But you really can't design a product around that because you don't know which ones to work on, right? So then you go back to those same customers and you do a round of quantitative interviews, which we call preference. Here, you say, hey, we heard abrasion resistance is important. How important is it on a scale of 1 to 10? And how satisfied are you with it on a scale of 1 to 10? And you go through maybe 10, 15, 20 of these outcomes. Now, what are you looking for? You're looking for some outcomes that score high in importance and low in current satisfaction. Because the only thing the market might pay you a premium for is something that's important that they're not getting. And so we have a little formula we use. We call it market satisfaction gaps. But basically, if you get a number, we call it 30% and up, it tells you that the market is really eager for abrasion resistance, sunlight resistance, and low temperature flexibility, but they don't care about, you know, D, E, and F, right? And so now in the front end, you've got a business case, you're ready to go through the money gate into the expensive stage gate, a stage called development, but you know exactly what to work on and what not to work on. So if you think about it, Paul, every team that works on a new product has technical risk. Can we really do this? And commercial risk, do we really know what the market wants? And in B2B, you really should be eliminating nearly all of your commercial risk in the front end with these interviews. So when you go into the development stage, you can really just focus on the technical risk. That's that's the goal for B2B. Gotcha, gotcha. And these interviews, Dan, how, how do you approach them? Do you do them where you have a session, you're talking to the same maybe department or group of people or, or same portion of the customer, do you do discovery and then and then preference together? Or do you do a bunch of discovery across a wide variety of, of, of segments in the customers and then come back and do preference? So how do you approach it? Yeah, good question. The latter, really. And the reason is, when you do that discovery interview, it's with a particular company, but you're going to get the major buying decisions and influencers there operations, R&D, marketing, and so forth. And you're going to let them all tell you what their their outcomes are, and they're going to be different. And then you go to company B, and you're going to hear some different outcomes in company C. So when you're done with, let's say, let's call it six to eight of these discovery interviews in a market segment. So that means most of those companies are competing with each other. They're, they're doing the same, same sort of thing. 
Now I've got dozens and dozens of outcomes. So I'm going to look to see which ones came up the most often, mm -hmm. which were duplicated. And I'm going to boil it down to a smaller list of 10 to 20. Then I'll go back out to those companies and maybe some other ones, or maybe even do a survey. And I'll get those importance and satisfaction, one to 10 ratings on these 10 to 20 outcomes. And that will tell me what to work on and what not to work on. Yeah. Dan, where do you find companies get stuck or struggle with being successful at it? Well, the problem is most companies just don't do this. Yeah, okay. You know, they, they go do some voice of customer, but I'll give you a typical example. Hey, do you guys do voice of customer? Oh, yeah, we do voice of customer. <laughs> well, how, how do you do it? You know? Yeah. And they'll say, well, well, we come up with a great idea. And then we go out to our customers and say, you do like our great idea, don't you? And I say, well, yeah. you know, we got this thing called confirmation bias. So we have to be a little yeah. bit worried about, you know, it's we all suffer. Every one of us is humans. We we interpret the world around us and new information in ways that conform to our preconceived notions. It makes life easier. Right. Why make life hard? But the problem is when companies do this and they start with their solution, very seldom do they get the straight story. They hear what they want to hear. Your customers tell them what they want to, you know, what they think they want to hear. So what we say is it's okay if you've got a solution or an idea, but don't talk about it in your interviews. Instead, it's all about the customer's outcomes within their job to be done. You keep saying, what else? What other problems? And then, of course, we've developed some probing methods. So When's it happen? Where's it happen? How often does it happen? What's the impact when it happens? And that's what we train our clients in. So they get all this information out of the interviews and then use the quantitative benchmark to pick which one to work on. Yeah. So it's really, I think the biggest need, as you said, is just to understand how to do it. I think people, people want to do it, but they just don't know how to do it. And that's where you bring the, the structure in and you get away from the the gut feel, oh, this is what we should do, to really some validation with some data around it. That's right, Paul. And, you know, for myself and my colleagues, we have felt for a long time that the the qualitative step is is fun. You know, we our software we that our clients use has like sticky notes and it feels like brainstorming and there's a lot of probing. It's fun. But we have felt for a long time that the real critical step was that quantitative one. Yeah. And, you know, we did this research, and I'll, I'll make sure this is available to our listeners, about a year ago. And what was interesting was we had 12 different VOC skills, and we were able to compare the, the responses from people who said they're really struggling with new product development <laughs> to those people from companies who said, no, we're doing great with new product development, right? So we've got the kind of the winners and losers there. And here's what we found. Of all 12 VOC skills, the strongest differentiator, the biggest difference in skill was for the skill called prioritize customer needs, which in fact is that preference quantitative interview. So when people ask me, what's the single biggest thing we should be doing? I tell them, well, the, the biggest differentiator between the winners and losers is, are you going out doing quantitative interviews, getting rid of the confirmation bias so you know exactly what to work on and what not to work on? 
So that's that's the key. We've kind of known this from our experience, but the research supported this. Yeah, I guess there's two ways to prioritize those those those, those needs. One is again just based on your own internal guess, which is probably <laughs> what most people do, or to have some data, to have some metrics, to have some you know quantitative aspects to it that you could use to help you prioritize that. And that's what's that's what's exciting about what you're doing. Well, you know, it's funny. I had somebody come up to me in a workshop. We don't do many in-person workshops since the pandemic. It's all virtual now. But he was so frustrated. He came up during a break and goes, Dan, I went out and I did like five months of VOC work. And then I showed it to my boss. And my boss said, nah, I don't think that's what customers oh, want. Gosh. Here's what I think customers want, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, he was pretty frustrated. But then I said to him, I said, well, let me ask you, did you show him quantitative data or just qualitative? He goes, ah, qualitative. There you go. And so here's the problem with that. I mean, let's say, Paul, you and I and, and Chloe, we're on, a, we're on a, a team working together on new product development. And I've been telling you guys, you know, ever since the project started that customers want, you know, better abrasion resistance, okay? Now we go out and we do the first interview. Customer doesn't mention abrasion resistance. Second interview, they don't mention it. Now we're getting to like the last interview. It's number eight. I'm getting ready to pack up my gear. I say to the customer, is there anything else you guys want? Anything you can think of? And the customer says, just as I'm about ready to leave, well, maybe, I don't know, abrasion resistance. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so now I'm putting together a PowerPoint slide. I'm showing it to my boss. What shows up in 72-point bold aerial font that the customer said they wanted? Abrasion resistance. They said it, right? You know, so, so this is that's a, maybe an extreme case, but, you know, we, we really need to get a little quantitative about it. Yeah, this. we do. <laughs> well, it's really important. And that helps you counter the argument when somebody says, well, I don't agree. Right. Well, you bring it back exactly. into company. So there's always the, the person who says, I don't agree. You know, we've had well over a thousand teams in every imaginable industry around the world do market satisfaction, you know, do the projects. Do you know how many times I've heard a team present to management and say, here's what customers want? The market satisfaction gap, now the quantitative, and had the leaders disagree? Zero. Really? I've never heard of that happening. Once they see the hard numbers, yeah. then it's like, who can argue who can with argue? this? Yeah. Without yeah. that, you're sunk. But with that, it's yeah. there. It's there. You got to do yeah. it. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned having doing a lot of these things, and I'm sure you have a lot of success stories, Dan. But is there one particular one you'd like to share today? Well, you know, kind of at a macro level, this is We've actually heard this several times, but I'll share one particular case. And I, because it's B2B, I can't really divulge the name of the company. But, you know, so Bob Cooper did some research and he found that once companies enter the stage gate development stage, right, the money gate, now they're going to go in the lab, that the average success rate is 25%. So we had a very large uh, Fortune 50 company that was tracking and they, they were also had about a 25% success rate as they would start the projects going into development. But after they implemented it, we trained over 2000 people at this company. After they were implementing it, they got to the point where they were having a 75% success That's rate material. going into development. 
And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of that, I mean, some of it came from the, her really cool things and they were able to develop a different product than what they would have. But frankly, some of it came just from killing bad ideas yep. in the front end. Uh, so either way, it's pretty inexpensive and pretty quick to do the front end. If you can get your development people working on, maybe there's some significant technical risk, but almost no commercial risk, you are going to be way ahead of the company that's struggling with a lot of commercial risk unduly in the development stage. And as you said, you got to get out there to the, to the customer. We, yeah. we all get so busy. Things catch up with us. We have, we're so, so many things on our plate that it's, it's easy to just put that off. Yeah, it is. When, it, when, it, when a client tells me or a prospect says, you know, we don't have the resources, I say, well, why don't you move them up and out? And when I say move them up, you're spending a huge amount of time in the development stage. Take some of those resources, and engineers and chemists are great for this, and send them out in the, in the front end. That's how you move them up. And then move them out, it means instead of just talking to ourselves in conference rooms, let's go talk to our customers. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. And if you do those two things, you probably have the resources. You're just not deploying them in the best manner today. Yeah, and then you, you start to also understand who's interested in it, who's good at it. I'm thinking of your, you know, your succession oh, yeah. model we talked about earlier, right? You're going to identify people that are just really good at it, right? Maybe they didn't even know they were good at it or they never had the chance. You take some of these engineers and you turn them loose in the front end. The customers love to see them coming. And these some of these folks are amazing in the front end. Totally agree. I've I've had my my fortunate experience of working with a lot of engineers and seen some that are just dynamite at it. And it's a lot of fun when you when as a leader, when you see it happen, you just sit back and smile and say, Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dan, what are you working on now that's exciting? You always got something going on, but you mentioned that the study you'd done, that that was really exciting, that leadership study and research, but you've always got something up your sleeve. So what? share with us what you're working on now. Yeah, if you'll give me even two here. You know, I'll give the, you two. Is that okay? Okay, yeah. we'll do two. <laughs> well, the first one, you, you are a key player in this, you know, our AIM Institute has teamed up with Sophion over the last uh, year and a half now so that the data coming out of the front end blueprinter software now flows into Sophion's accolade. And as you know, Paul, we've got some clients now who are taking advantage of that. That's very exciting to me because why do some great front end work and then just put it on a shelf? Now you've got all this information about commercial risk, technical risk, and everything else that can now be attached to that project and go all the way through the rest of the, the phase gate process. And so that's very, very exciting. We, As you know, we've done a lot of work there, and we'll be doing more with our mutual clients on that. Yeah, I'm really excited about that as well, Dan, because if you're in the back end of the, the stage gate process, Having the ability to just track back up, a lot of times that that decision gets made at a gate, and then the information never gets touched again, right? It's it's not yeah. accessible. You can't find it, right? And now we're able to trace it all the way back, which is really pretty exciting, and have it be in the forefront as people are continuing down that development and even the launch the launch process, right? When you're launching your product, knowing having that voice of customer 
data yet again, right? To help you with your messaging and everything you need to do to be successful in launch. So it's, it is exciting. I agree with you on that one. I'm glad you mentioned the launch, you know, because these days when you launch a product, you really want to be concerned about search engine optimization. If you're going to build a web page for your new product, and, you know, the key to that is knowing what the key words are that your potential customers are going to enter for a Google search. Well, here's the thing, to your point, if we can go back to those initial interviews in the front end, we can data mine those and find the actual language used in the front end interviews, voice of customer. Now we can use that to design better SEO. So it's just one example of why we don't want to separate these things. We want to keep that data flowing. Yeah, totally agree. Oh, the other one, yeah. the uh, second one, yeah. So, you know, this is kind of funny, a little bit embarrassing because we should be listening to our clients if we teach them how to <laughs> listen to their clients, right? So, so for years, people have said, these are really good probing methods, but shouldn't we be using them all the time? It's sales call, customer service, tech support. We go, yeah, yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this last fall, we came up with a new offering called Everyday VOC. And uh, it's been accepted really, really well. So not just by our existing blueprinting clients, but others. And the way it works is we train their sales and tech support and other people how to do these special probing methods that we developed as part of blueprinting, right? And we, we show them how to get it entered into their CRM, like salesforce.com in a certain format. So you avoid the garbage in, garbage out. And it's been interesting, Paul, because there is research going back three decades from spin selling. That's, that was the original oh, yeah. consultant of selling research, you know, well, and it's, it proved after 35,000 sales calls being monitored, the most effective salespeople ask really good questions. And so now we're training these salespeople how to, have, how to ask really good questions, but they're also, so they're able to sell better, but we're also turning the sales force into a learning force, showing them how to capture it so their product managers and marketing people can data mine this and look for weak signals of market interest and then know when to develop new product projects. So that's something we just started up and we're having a lot of fun with. Dan, I, so many light bulbs went off my mind here with that one. You know, I think about in our own company and we talk to some of our customers and the best relationships we have are ones where our entire company is engaging with our customers, right? Not just yes. the front end people. And it comes all the way through when you're, let's say you're in a support position and you're doing some of that everyday voice of customer. I love it. <laughs> you're talking to the customer about their business. You're not just being a working on an issue, right? You're talking about the business. Yes. And companies then get closer to you because they say, Yeah, you know, everybody at you know, everybody at the AIM Institute, no matter who I talk to there, it's a fun conversation. And we talk about the things we're trying to do and they listen and you know, you just become close to your customers in a way that you can't. So I think, I think this everyday VOC is a, is an excellent, excellent idea. But you hit, you hit it right on the, on the head there, Paul. You know, if, if I'm a potential customer and the last five salespeople came in and tried to sell me what they already had, and now the next salesperson comes in and he's really listening to me, you know, he thinks yeah. I'm fascinating, right? right? He's asking great questions. Well, who do I want to work with? That's right. 
And also, that salesperson knows what to sell me better. That's right. And then if he logs it in his CRM and, and these signals come through, my product managers and development people know what to develop next. And it just impacts the entire culture of that supplier company because this is what we do. We listen hard to our customers. So, yeah, it tends – you almost don't know who to – <laughs> we're still new for us. Right. I'm not sure who to sell this to. Do we sell this to the sales leader? Do we sell this to the marketing person, the CEO? But it can help in many yeah, different ways. Certainly one that many companies have the role now. It's actually a designated capability in a company called custom yeah. success. And I think for exactly. sure that that's one that needs to be in that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a key point. That you were getting a lot of interest from the customer success leaders. Bet, you're right. I bet. Well, that's a lot of fun. I, I look forward to uh, Dan. I look forward to hearing how that goes and and seeing how that that you know changes and 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 morphs and becomes better and better. And and uh, like I said, we we need to keep talking about that and maybe you know have another episode down the road and say you know what do you what have you learned? How's it worked? What have you changed? How's it been adopted? Love to chat with you more about that. We're always learning here. And then we'll keep you posted, too, on this book. It's qu yeah. quite fascinating. We were able to compare successful to unsuccessful companies. So we're starting to see we're still getting through the data, but there's some really interesting patterns. And everything we're seeing so far says you're going to be better off if you've got a builder at the helm. Yeah, I like that. Well, Dan, it's been a fun conversation, as it always is. I really appreciate you you stopping in and sharing what's what's new in your part of the world and, and sharing some of these concepts with us. It's been a fun conversation. Well, thanks for having me over, Paul. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I love working with not only you, but your company. That's a great one, Sofian. So thank you. Okay. And you take care, Dan. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Every time there's a discussion with Dan, it's always fun. He's such a such a, a great human being and also very good at what he does. I wish you all a great week ahead. Take care and bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.